there. I have this on uh, PowerPoint, but you can follow along in your own Bible. Here's what we read. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Well, I want to give you just a little bit of an update, and I kind of mentioned that in, in advance about this summer break. Uh, just a few words to reflect upon. <clears throat> the first one is grateful. I mean, I'm very grateful that you have given us the opportunity on a regular basis during July to take some time and to just uh, get away and to kind of recalibrate some. I know not everybody gets the opportunity to do that. I'm profoundly aware that some people never get a break, and certainly some pastors don't either. So I wanted to say, uh, just on behalf of my whole family, how grateful I am to you, how supported we feel that you give us this opportunity. And of course, it's designed, hopefully, is for uh, rest and refreshment and, and longevity. Um, the rest and refreshment part didn't come so easily. Uh, unfortunately, this time around, another word is adventurous. So there are a lot of things that didn't go uh, according to plan throughout the course of, of my break. Uh, adventurous is probably a generous term. <clears throat> the first thing that uh, I did was, the only travel that I did was with my 14-year-old son, Noah, and we went out to Oregon, where my parents are. We haven't seen them in over two years with everything happening. And we scheduled some, some fun trips to do uh, along the way. The first was a whitewater rafting trip, which I've had the chance to do several times in my life. I, I enjoy that very much. Uh, this was uh, in Washington. So the Columbia River divides Oregon and Washington. We stayed on the Oregon side, went over to the White Salmon River, the temperature of the water is 40s, in the 40s, it's just a glacial uh, off, uh, running off of waters, and so brisk, we did have, uh, you know, a, an appropriate suit on and whatnot too, and it was, it was fun, it was gorgeous, it was beautiful. There is a, a rapid, a class 5 rapid at one point, some people get off because they elect not to go uh, on the rapid, that's something I would never consider in all of my life. And in, in particular, you know, I asked the guide, I said, how many times do people capsize on the, on the backside of this? Uh, it's about a 12, 14 foot drop, so it's like a small waterfall. He said, I've done this 2,000 times, and I probably five times people have, uh, have capsized. Uh, so that's a little backstory to this. This is <laughs> the fun part of it is it's right before the lunch break, so they've got cameras there, and there's a bridge, and some people are watching, 
So we uh, purchased the pictures on the back end. Of it, I'm in the middle there. Uh, Noah's on on the on the near side. The two people in front of us, a stepfather and an 18-year-old daughter. And then there's guides in the back. The guides in the back. One of them was the guy who was in charge of everything. The other is going on a test run to get ready for uh, for maybe guiding people down the river. So there we are. We going down, and uh, we hit the water. And as you can see, it was a bit, uh, well, it's white and it's water, and we're hitting pretty hard. And unfortunately, you can see that we're beginning to capsize. There are two, uh, I think I went in first, the guy in front of me, we're supposed to hold on to the ropes, but he catapulted into me and just knocked me out of the, the raft. And so there were tumbling underneath, there's the after math of it too. We were, we were told beforehand, if you get caught underneath, you ball up into, get into a little ball and eventually it'll spit you out. And then you just start swimming towards water. Well, I was trapped uh, underneath in that swirl and in a little ball for as long as I possibly could. I was just losing, losing breath and I was starting to panic. So I started trying to swim, but everything was tossing and turning me. And I took uh, involuntary gasp because I was out of breath and took in water. And I'm telling you, I thought I was going to die. It was definitely, uh, I don't know if anyone's had the experience of potentially drowning before, but... Some of you, I, I don't know if this is, says something about my psyche, but have you ever felt like you're dying in your dreams? Anybody here? A, only a couple people. We're a select few of individuals. Yeah, it was like that, but I knew I wasn't dreaming. And I honestly thought that was the end uh, uh, of things, too. It was absolutely terrifying. And just at the last moment, I managed to pop up a little bit down, downstream, and I was gasping for breath, turned around, and looked, and I didn't see anybody else up from that scene there, too. So we'll go down a little bit of rocky kind of rapids, maybe a few hundred feet until I was able to get to the shore and turn around and look back up, and that's still that all I see. And all I could think of was Noah, like my 14-year-old son. There seen nobody else. And finally, one of these guides came, and they said, are you okay? And I said, where's my son? Is my son okay? He said, everybody else is out. And I just said, I repeated, is my son okay? All I'd heard when I got out of the water was the 18-year-old girl clinging to some rocks and crying. That's all I heard. I didn't even see anybody else as well. Now, my parents feel terrible about this because they arranged the whitewater rafting trip. <laughs> and it was supposed to be a restful and relaxing occasion, right? And honestly, you know, it was one of those kind of traumatic experiences that for... I'd say a good couple of weeks, every time I shut my eyes at night, I was reliving that experience over and over and over again. Noah has a separate story uh, about hitting, we had helmets on, but he hit his head on a rock and he thought I was dead as well because he couldn't see me. So good times <laughs> all, 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 all around. And, you know, we, we, that was only halfway through the trip and I, I had to kind of breathe through it and we, we got back on. Uh, and, and finish the trip without any, uh, any other occurrences. But it was kind of a processing experience trying to, trying to wrestle with that along, along the way too. We, we weren't done with the fun yet because as you heard, Morocco was canceled for Noel. My, my daughter was not able, she got to DC and then a flight was canceled and the next one was available weeks out. So after four days in DC, she returned uh, home. And uh, when, I, when I got back home, I was doing a house project 
I was about 10 feet up on a ladder and the, the, the base came out from underneath me and I landed on the, the concrete um, in, in, the, in the garage and uh, there was a, a loud yell accompanied with it and Jill came out, her heart was already you know, stilled from previous events too and uh, I, I just minor injuries and bruises, kind of a miracle frankly that I didn't hurt myself a little bit more. Noah ended up in the emergency room with a bizarre experience. Uh, that, that was, you know, very, very frightening, and it was all taken care of. My parents came to visit us. Uh, my mother fell down a four-foot embankment on the Loveland bike trail. If just north of the Loveland part, you know where there's that, like, road. You cross the first road, if you know that, and then there's a, an embankment there. She just lost control and went right down it. I saw, saw it and everything happening, and so we ended up in urgent care with some abrasions and wraps and all kinds of stuff the day before she, she left. So if you ask me, was it refreshed, refreshing and restful? Um, not, not entirely. Um, but another, another piece of it is that on the back end of this, my, my final word for now is you know, perspective providing. Another thing that happened, uh, Jill's parents are trying to move down here, and we're in the midst of helping them get here. Uh, Jill's mother needs some, some additional attention now, so uh, my mother-in-law moved in with us a, a couple of weeks ago as, as well, and so she's in our home uh, too. And, you know, that changes dynamics just, just a bit as, as well. And Jill's father came to offer some support a couple of days ago. They'll be here for a little bit as they transition into... A, uh, their condominium. <sighs> so that's what's going on. But the perspective piece of it is I realize, and perhaps you're like me. <clears throat> I mean, honestly, the break's great. I feel a little pressure on the front end of the break. I gotta, re I gotta get refreshed. I gotta rest. I gotta be refreshed. I gotta rest because that's the design. And when it's not coming, you start feeling a little guilty for not being that. And frankly, a little. Up frustrated. Like, why isn't this happening? And the perspective piece with it, uh, of it for me was just to see that, I mean, first off, it is restful to get a break from kind of the regular activities of life and the preparations and, and some of the, you know, the stresses that come along just with your vocational calling. But the other thing is to realize that I was able to be available and at home and more attentive as some of these things were unfolding in a way that I couldn't be otherwise. And that perspective came to me as I was thinking and praying and reflecting on this as well. And so I come out on the back end of this, you know, with some of these things unfinished, but grateful again for the time to be able to focus and be available and a support for my immediate and extended family along the way. Jill's parents closed on their condo. They're going to be living five minutes away. Their house got an offer already. It was just listed, which is, I'm assuming, they'll take. So in the next few weeks, we'll be transitioning them down here, and we'll have family uh, nearby, longer term, really for the first time since we've been in Cincinnati in 20-plus 20, 20 years. So a new phase of life for us, for sure. When you think about perspective, that's really what this message and this series is all about. This is a graphic that Carmen put together. I think it's fantastic, Carmen, Life in God's Kingdom. It's such a, a beautiful picture, really, of the synopsis of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom because you're in the world, 
right? You're right there and there's a city, but it's, it's this upside down kingdom. It's just different. There's a different value system. There's a different ethic. There's a different lifestyle. You are unique. You are distinct. You're not completely separate, but you're not the same. And if you're going to enter into what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be dictated by a completely different mindset that leads to a different lifestyle as well. And that's what he is exploring in this large section in the Sermon on the Mount. We already read the first couple of things here too. I'm not entirely sure what, how that happened because that is not supposed to come up first. So that's a little teaser of where we'll be headed, obviously, too. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And then he goes on to talk about all the things that he is teaching next. Jesus' disciples gather around him to listen, and others get to listen as well. He's about to share with them some very practical lessons about what it means to follow him the values and the priorities of someone who wants to walk in his ways. And it's a description of that lifestyle that a person has if he is truly to be a citizen of that kingdom. You know, just before this passage, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see in Matthew chapter 4 that in verse 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness among the people, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around across the Jordan followed him. <clears throat> so large crowds have heard and seen what Jesus is doing, and this is the next scene. Then he looks out, he sees the crowds, and he uses this opportunity to teach them. And when Jesus begins to teach, he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down. And we see that Jesus here is demonstrating the fact that he has a positional and a relational authority. And really we're saying, who has the right and the power to tell us what is right and what is wrong. You know, if you wanted some investment advice for somebody, let's say you have a few thousand dollars that you want to invest, who would you go to if you had the opportunity? Would you go to an 18-year-old who just downloaded the Robinhood app and who said, now I know how to invest? And would you go to them and say, what do I do with this $2,000? Do I put it all in cryptocurrency? Do I, do I put it into Fifth Third Bank? Where do I go? And he says, I've been doing this for a month. And I've had great ROI. Let me tell you where to put your money. Or if Warren Buffett came to town and said, I'll spend an hour with you telling you what to do with those $2,000, who would you think is a better authority? Obviously Warren Buffett. Why? He's proven that he knows what to do. He's tried and he's tested. He's somebody who's got some authority. He's been around for a while. And as, as much as you might want somebody, and you know, in our particular culture, I don't know if you've observed that we kind of sometimes elevate people to a position of authority who don't necessarily deserve the trust. 
who haven't had a strong and long track record of understanding what it is that they're claiming to be an authority on. I know social media is an easy target for a reason. There, there's a lot of influencers who claim to be authorities just by virtue of how many followers they have. One of the reasons I'm attracted and always have been over my lifetime to godly men who have run the race who are in their 80s and the 90s is I want them to feed into my life. I treat them as an authority figure that I really value heavily what they're saying. And when Jesus sits and teaches, he's doing a couple of things that indicate he has the authority to start talking and teaching. A lot of commentators note that there's a ton of similarities between Jesus and Moses. One of them is just the fact that Moses, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. It has five separate teaching sec sections, just as a Jewish person would understand, is like the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And that law of God, the moral code of God, the Ten Commandments was getting given on a mountaintop as well. And Jesus, as we know already here, is indicating that he has some authority. In fact, if you look over in Matthew chapter 7, in 28, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed it is teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There's something different. There's something weighty about the teaching that they had just heard. And you know we live on the back end of the end of this uh, whole message and, and what we call the canon, the finished work that God has delivered to us, and Jesus proves he has authority. The book of Hebrews is all about the authority that Jesus has. It's the fulfillment, not just of Moses, but the entire Old Testament looking forward to him. And we learn in John that he was the one who was and is and is to come. He was with God in the beginning. He was the one through whom creation was spoken into existence. He always has been. He always will be. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there's no one greater than him. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He understands everything about who you are, and so he's a pretty good authority. He's the one that we should be listening to. Teach us. And a good question to ask ourselves is, who is our authority? What are we giving weight to? The words that we hear, the messages, the voices in our head, measuring those against the one who is the ultimate authority. And it's not just a positional authority. You know, when you walk kids into a classroom, you're supposed to give respect to your teacher because they can give you an F, I suppose, if they don't like you. So you have to obey them. But there's a difference, you know, between teachers and, and coaches and others who you have to obey and those who you desire to obey because they're in relationship with you. They've earned your respect. When Jesus looks out and sees the crowds, the other time we read this in the book of Matthew, he looks out and sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. They're like, a sheep, without, like sheep without a shepherd. So he's not just somebody who has positional authority. He's a compassionate 
shepherd who comes alongside and seeks to understand it. When he teaches, he's teaching to your heart uniquely. It's a universal message, but it's shaped by God's spirit for you. So when you think about who am I giving authority to, this Christ here in the scriptures, he, it's not just that he deserves it, but by who he is and what he has done, his moving toward those who need it, he's really earned it. So there's a positional authority, a relational one, as he sits down and sees the crowds, goes on the mountainside, begins to teach. But we see as well that just in the very teaching, he's giving a code, an ethical code, a morality. In fact, a flourishing and defining morality. You know, how do we know what right living looks like? Who has the authority to tell us what's right and wrong? And what is right and wrong? Once we have the authority, if we say, okay, we believe maybe we're willing to entertain the thought that Jesus perhaps ought to be our authority, then what does he say about what's right and what's wrong? This is his manifesto, as it were, on what it looks like to live in his kingdom, the, the morality, the, the right living that we are to be pursuing. You know, kids, morality is a big word, but it can be summed up in a phrase. That's not fair. You know that, right? When, when, you're, when you're at home, anytime something happens and you say, that's not fair, you, that's really, you're talking about morality. What's right and what's wrong. You feel like somebody's done something wrong to you. It's not fair. How do you know it's not fair? Who put that in you? Who put that notion that there's a right and that there's a wrong? Jesus is saying, I can teach because I have full authority to declare this is right and this is wrong. How you should think, feel, and behave. Jesus is giving everybody a structure for understanding who they are and how they're to relate to others. And he says that my followers are to be the examples of what that looks like. If you're in my kingdom, it's upside down. It's different than others around you. But it is a distinctive and a true plumb line. And that's why I say it's a defining morality. It's a flourishing one because Jesus will say, blessed are you if you live this way. You know, blessed is a good word. You're blessed, however you want to say it. If, if anybody want to be blessed today, would you like to be cursed or blessed today? Any cursings? Anyone line up for cursings on this side? Blessings on this side. If you have a choice, you're probably going to be on the blessings side of things. And Jesus says, all right, I'll, you'll be blessed. Live this way. It's a statement about right and wrong, morality, good and evil. Blessed are those. It presumes he knows who we are and how we function. Scott McKnight makes an interesting observation. that For those of you who are interested in, in ethics and in, in philosophical ponderings, he starts thinking about the categories of ethics. You have virtue ethics. That's Aristotelian. Like how do we live right is defined by what, what allows us to flourish. And then you have maybe a, a deontological categories, the categorical imperative of Immanuel Kant, who said this is what we ought to do. This is, this is the way we ought to to behave. And, and then you have utilitarian ethics, which is 
the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And Scott McKnight notes that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount is incorporating all of those in a completely unique sort of way. It's incorporating all of these things. We shouldn't be surprised when philosophers come to something and discover a, 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 something that might be a part of the truth, but maybe not the whole, that it's also reflected in God's word, which has the whole truth. Shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is baking all of those together and adding some as well because one of the ethics of Jesus' kingdom is that you live now with a view to the future. He'll talk about this. Don't store up treasures here, but do it in heaven. The way that you look forward affects the way that you behave today. And that's even a new category. A flourishing and defining morality. You can flourish in this kingdom. And it gives you structure for right and wrong. And don't we need that today? How relevant, to use a hip word, is this? Are these things? Do we have an authority? And how do we know what right and wrong is? And Jesus, when he sits down, says, I'm going to give this to you. And then it's no surprise what the third point is, is it? An inward, an outward call to integrity. Do our thoughts, motives, and actions align properly with our beliefs on morality and authority? In other words, are you walking the walk, right? Are you not just receiving the information and then doing something completely different? When I say an outward integrity, that's what I'm Call, uh, talking about. Jesus calls his disciples, he's talking to them, and all the crowds are gathering around listening, and they're hearing what he's saying. He said, this is what it's like to live in my kingdom. And then when it's all finished and they leave, they're probably watching those people to say, are they really going to do it? Are they going to live this way that, that their Savior is calling them to, their king? That's the outward call to integrity. It's there in the passage as well. You're going to be salt and light, show your deeds so that people can see and it lines up with my kingdom. But there's an inward call to integrity as well because Jesus is going to talk to people who know that law that came down from Moses and he's going to deepen it even farther and say, when I said don't commit adultery, you've broken that when you've committed it in your heart. Because that's what he's getting to, all the way down, below skin deep, to the essence of your being. Is it rightly aligned with life in God's kingdom? That's an inward call to integrity, isn't it? Something much deeper than just obedience on the outside. And we need that. But the integrity he's calling us is to align what's happening on the inside with that because from what, what's inside spills out. One of the reasons I felt frankly convicted about this on the back end of my harrowing near-death experience was our guide, who I did not like, to be honest with you. He was a bit arrogant and it, it seemed like, you know, I don't know if any of you have been in a situation on a, a, something like that before. And these were, this is a pretty tricky navigational, I mean, maybe you got an idea. It wasn't like a walk in the park kind of river experience. It was pretty difficult. And there were times, even on the back end of this, when he'd make jokes about, you know, maybe he would threaten to, uh, to, to maybe throw his paddle out so that we were in charge of everything. 
He had this position of authority, and he was using it in a way that was making us, you know, who had already had a near-death experience, frankly, not feel very comfortable about things, too. He wasn't using it very well. There was a pride about him that really bothered me. And I've discovered something over the years, too. One of the reasons I don't like proud people is because I'm one. There's something, there's something in other people when there's that prideful, arrogant, whatever, that just grates me. And every now and then, in a moment of clarity, I realize, that's me. And when I was thinking about blessed are the poor in spirit, this sense of poverty of soul, you know, I'm, I, I, I think I'm pretty witty. Some people call me snarky. And I, I threw a couple snarky comments at the guy uh, along the way, too, to, to try to bring him down to his, the level where he should be, at least in my mind. I was like, you don't do that kind of stuff, dude. That's not cool. And I started thinking, why am I doing that? It's because I'm proud. I, I can't live this life. To be broken in spirit, and when there's some arrogant guy who's in charge of my life, doing something instead of, I don't know, praying for him. I just want to use words to bring him down to the level he should be. And I can do it. And I was, I was a little undone afterwards because I was thinking on the back end, wow, I need this. I need this. I'm not living life in God's kingdom. Do you think that guy on the back end would have said, you know what? And I'm not saying he ever would have, but you, most people are snarky with me, but you were just humble and kind. And, or on the back end, say, you know, I could have just said to him, you know, I'd be tempted to say something like, you're a real jerk, but I prayed for you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not bold enough to do that because I don't like conflict, but even to say, look, man, thanks, thanks for the trip. It was, it, was, it was quite an experience, and I'm going to be praying for you. One of the things, he was making fun of God along the way, too. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do, I, how do I wrestle with what this looks like? And I'm right there in the boat with you people, right? In the raft, as it were. And sometimes I feel like my life is just getting capsized and I'm not living this way. So as we, as we move through this, here's what I think we're going to find. Just a, a couple of things. I'm going to skip that. Number one, I think there's an indictment here. As we read through and, and work through the Sermon on the Mount, part of the indictment is we haven't lived this way. As we, as we maybe embrace, some of you have embraced this and say, yes, I'm on board. You're going to realize, wow, that's not me. I'm not living that sort of way. And uh, what do you do with that? Well, you confess it. You admit it. Let's be honest about this. That's what you do. You recognize that there's a gap in who you say you are and who you actually are. And that, I would submit to you, is distinctive. That's a good distinctive start for life in God's kingdom, recognizing that. This is an indictment on me. If you, if you aren't willing to do that, ironically, you're not living life in God's kingdom. So you should feel a little bit of ah, freedom because you're going to fail. It's going to be something you wrestle with. I had the chance to read uh, some during the summer. I enjoy reading some of it, just a, a lot of kind of novel pleasure reading and a, a couple of content books, at least some progress in them. Still have to finish this book, but when I was reading through this uh, lady with Wycliffe, 
who was translating the Bible into uh, a native language. She'd been there for years, and people are starting to embrace the gospel for the first time. She says, when we finished translating the book of James, I typed up a dozen copies to hand out to people who could read. I'd always disliked typing, but after seeking the power of the, or seeing the power of the written word, especially among these, this people group, I couldn't wait to get to my typewriter and start typing. A man named Fonganon got one of the copies. A few days later, he came running, shouting, come quickly, hurry, my boys are dying. They've been off in the forest and have eaten poison berries. I was paralyzed. In all my seven years there, I'd never treated poisoning. Finally, I stammered out, but, but I don't know what to do. Anxious and frustrated, he blurted out, well, can't you at least come and pray? That's what this book of James that you gave me to read says you're supposed to do. <laughs> That's, you know what, why do we forget the basic thing? This life in God's kingdom. You know, the knee-jerk responses, and I think those of us who've maybe been doing this for a long time forget. We haven't cultivated those responses of what it means to be a citizen in God's kingdom. In that respect, then, I hope this series is an opportunity. We aim to live this way. This is our desire. We want to do this. We want to take intentional steps. We want to call on God's spirit to empower us, give us the strength, give us the courage to confess when we're wrong and the strength to live in this kind of way. This is a very upside down sort of kingdom. And if we're taking these words to heart, it's going to challenge us in some ways. And we might be finding ourselves using conjunctions a lot. But, 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 but. And God is calling us to trust in that. And that's what life in God's upside down kingdom is all about. My final word, I suppose, uh, would be anticipatory. Then I'm anticipating God working in my heart as we open up his word and begin this new series. But I think the year ahead of us as well is a year filled with anticipation. As we get to use uh, Redeemer House and find out what kind of new ministries he's birthing and fully leverage all the gifts that God's given to us. I'm anticipating growing with you and, and learning and struggling and hopefully setting our eyes together on building God's kingdom in the here and the now. So we're going to be going through uh, the Beatitudes uh, next, and hopefully God will use that as an opportunity to shape and to mold us according to his image. I want to remind you that we are going to have a meal after the, the service, and if you didn't bring any food, that's okay. Um, please plan on joining us anyway at the Redeemer House. There's parking actually on the site. If you wrap around, you'll see some signs. You can park on the grass. Or you can just pull up here on the drive, on the drive as you're exiting and stay on the right side and park there and walk over. You'll notice a pool has been set up there. We're going to have a baptism. Uh, Michael Meidel is going to be baptized. And this is the first time we've done it in this way. So we're going to be heading over there as soon as we can. Afterwards, the good news is you don't need to tear down. We can leave this set up for next week at least, which is good. So after the service, just make your way over there. And even if you're not able to stay for the lunch, I'd love to have you there. We'll do the baptism first thing and then celebrate with a meal 
following uh, as well. So, with all that in mind then, um, let's stand and sing the doxology in response to God's word, giving him further praise than he is due. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day of your lives if you go and live out life in God's kingdom. And everybody said, amen. 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 See you at the house.